Hello, Los Angeles arts community and beyond. I'm your host of the Art Break podcast, Carolina Sique. James Baldwin once said, the paradox of education is precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. In part one of this series, we discussed with black artists about the different macro and microaggressions they've experienced on an individual level. And since then, we've been seeing more of these individual cases come out, particularly in the collective called We See You White American Theater. This group is full of BIPOC theater makers whose aim is to address anti-blackness and racism within traditional westernized white American theater. But this really got me thinking. A lot of our producers, directors, actors, casting directors, all came from some type of training, whether it was conservatory, studio, or university training, or even self-teaching. But how does the way that we learn about theater affect the way that we see it in practice? How does the way that we learn theater influence the way that we see black artists and black art? Upon further research, I looked into an essay called Don't Call Black Theater African American Theater. It's like calling a dog a cat. Written by Dominic Taylor, current head of UCLA's acting program. In this essay, he outlines the difference between black theater meaning by, for, about, and near black people, and African-American theater, which is often produced by white artists, made digestible for a white audience, and is intended to connect black folks with other communities instead of addressing the black community specifically. These questions, as well as Dominic Taylor's essay, inspired this two-part conversation about westernized theatrical teaching and its effect on black artists. For this episode, I reached out to three amazing black artists, educators, and theorists. The first being Dr. J. Austin Williams, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. Well, my gosh, my 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 start as an artist was a long, long time ago. I had the good fortune of, of, of you know, being brought up by a family, a single mom uh, who always recognized and, and her sisters also the, the, the import of theater. And uh, so I, and, and black theater in particular, because I was um, brought up appreciating um, uh, the company, a Negro ensemble company that was uh, down on, at least when I started to go down and see NEC productions, uh, Negro Ensemble Company Productions. It was they were down on Second Avenue in Manhattan. I grew up in New York City in the South Bronx and then the Lower East Side, and uh, so we would go down and see shows there. And um, uh, so my mom either took me or my aunt Mickey took me, her younger sister. And so there was always an exposure to it. I never ever thought of myself when I was younger as a performer or being a theater person. And I'm still not a theater person per se. I'm a per- I'm a person who 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 does theater and now even more so I'm a person who theorizes theater and cinema and um and theorizes performance and in relation to blackness in the industry I began to realize that you know I was in an industry that wasn't really I was seeing black playwrights writing these incredible plays and engagements with important questions and I wasn't sure that the industry in which they were writing was really taking up those questions, was really, really listening. I also was seeing um, powerful directorial visions, people who were both directors and writers, uh, like George C. Wolfe and, 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 and others, who were, um, again, 
taking up something like really bold questions and bold uh, assertions about black life and the, the, the fact of it, you know, as Franz Fanon says, the fact of blackness. And I wasn't sure that the industry was really taking those up. The industry was certainly implementing black playwrights and black directors and black creators. Um, but the industry was becoming something that was, uh, was, was narrowing it, narrowing it down to a kind of a, a, a presence, a to, sort of tokenized presence in the course of a season. We got to put the little black play in there, you know, we got to get our, but they were still, you know, like setting off dynamite, asking these incredible existential and ontological questions that I still wasn't convinced that the industry was dealing with. So I so, told myself at some point, okay, I think I need to go back to school and get a language with which to grapple with all of this stuff because there was something that was troubling me. And so I took this weird path and in, 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 in my 50s, I went back to school. I got a master's in dramatic writing, which has turned out to be incredibly helpful to me because I'm, I'm able to take plays apart and put them back together, you know, and, and see all kinds of things going on in them. So that served me very well. But the, then I went into PhD school. I went to University of California. That's what moved me across the country from East Coast to West Coast. And I went to a uh, joint PhD program um, between UC Irvine and UC San Diego. I was based on the Irvine campus, went back and forth between the two for my coursework, two years. So I directed three productions while I was there in the seven years that I was on that campus. And then, um, you know, went on the job market and got, uh, got a, a position at a little school called Cal State Long Beach. <laughs> and that's how we met. Uh, and I was there for two years and, um, you know, and then moved on. I, 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 I knew, I, I started um, getting an inkling while I was there, probably even a little before, but, but while I was there, it became really clear to me that I needed to change my context from theater arts to critical black studies, within which I could work on and theorize performance, theater, drama, cinema, and on. And so that's what happened. A position came up at, uh, at Bucknell University um, in Pennsylvania in, a, in a, a program called Africana Studies. And so here I was as a performance studies specialist. So it, it, it has been a, a good, it has struck a good balance. And so, so, and so here I am today. I also spoke to the previously mentioned Dominic Taylor, head of acting at UCLA. As an artist, I mean, as an artist, what I try to do is I make black theater, but I do it in a tradition that comes out of W.E. Du Bois and Elaine Locke in so many real ways. So what I try to do is I try to make art that, as Du Bois said succinctly, using beauty to set the world right is the reason why people make art. That's the reason why you should make art. And then to subordinate that, it's art by us, for us, about us, and near us. So in that, in the, using those four things, it, it, it becomes complicated. But for me, you know, what I try to do as a writer and a director, and that's I, I work primarily as a, as a writer or a director, um, depending on who you ask. And so I direct a lot of black plays and I, and I write them. You know, as an educator, although I do teach four different classes on black theater at UCLA, what I try to do is I try to, well, I try to give artists tools to go and construct what they need to construct. I mean, I think there are challenges about that because occasionally your students will take the tools and use them in ways that, you know, I don't feel are progressive or, you know, in terms of my aesthetic, what I want. But, uh, 
you know, you, you, you give people tools, you don't give them ethics. So, you know, as an educator, I talk ethically, but in terms of the classroom tool set, I try to give the, whoever the potential maker, whether it's director, writer, actor, whoever, I try to make them conscious and aware. And then I try to give them the tools to let them go and do what they want to do in three-dimensional space. So, um, you know, I challenge them a lot about what they're thinking and I challenge them a lot about their assumptions. And then I also want them to embrace their, um, <laughs> embrace the things that they don't want to embrace sometimes, embrace their, for, for lack of a better term, you know, their privilege, their position. You know, if that's what they want to embrace, they got to hold it. They got to own it, you know. But I, but I want students to be aware of it. I do. I want them to be aware. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, part of the reason why I teach and I joke with my students about it is that I go to so much bad theater that I teach to see less bad theater. That's the reason why I teach. So I want to see less bad theater. I love going to theater. I don't want to see bad theater. So that's why I teach. And so I think that one of the, the challenges, though, which happens constantly is um, I guess I'm kind of perpetually surprised in the age of information how little students know, particularly about black theater, but about theater across the board, but particularly about black theater. I'm always, you know, shocked at how little, yeah, people know about black theater. As if, as if, you know, young women and men who want to make theater go into it and they think that the first person who wrote a play was Lorraine Hansberry. And I, you know, I kind of can't imagine that, but that's, you know, part of the reason why I teach so that I <laughs> um, make them aware of the, many, 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 many ancestors whose shoulders, you know, Lorraine was standing on, August Wilson was standing on, you know, George C. Wolfe was standing on, uh, Michael Jackson, who just wrote that musical, Playwrights Horizons, is standing on, everybody, you know, they're all, we're all standing on the shoulders of people for more than two centuries now, um, who were writing compelling, interesting, challenging things that nobody was paying attention to, so. That's why I teach. That's why I teach, I guess. Yeah. And Chris Anthony, assistant professor of acting at DePaul University in Chicago. You know, coming from a family of teachers, coming from a family of community organizers, coming from a family that really, really believed that faith only mattered when it was put in action, um, it felt very natural to me to move these conversations into the realm of my art, right? And, and it was really important to me at that time, I think because of what I had been through in elementary school and because of what I had been through in high school, to feel like I was representing well. You know, I was the generation just after uh, segregation, the generation that's like, okay, now you go, be, do. We're gonna send you to this white school so you can learn everything they know and you're gonna make it and you're gonna be great, right? So. So I grew up with that pressure, with that expectation that I was going to be a credit to my race, um, which seems like such a strange thing to say now, but it was very, very common. And so as I continued to train as an artist and go to conservatory myself, I never really let that go. I always believed that our art and this struggle, our art and this conversation were intertwined. And when I was in school, um, California Institute of the Arts, CalArts had a program uh, 
um, that was a partnership with Plaza de la Raza in Lincoln Park in Los Angeles. And so for many years, even after I um, was working, even after I was a student, I worked at Plaza and I was the assistant director of the theater program there. Um, and just learned a ton about being in Los Angeles, learned a ton about working in community, um, learned a ton, uh, frankly, about being an outsider. It's like, how do you sit in a conversation where you are not centered, right? How do you, how do you work with other people of color, right? And understand what their conversations are really about. What are their concerns? And I learned because I was working in that program and the World Party Youth Program at Shakespeare Festival, working in the mid nineties, with a lot of immigrants. And so I was working with a lot of immigrants and children of immigrants who didn't have parents who told them the things that my parents told me. And so I was, I was really struck. It was like, oh, you don't have that kitchen table where they tell you, you know what, it's not you. <laughs> you know what, it's not your fault. You know what, there are these other things happening. Right. And so I was like, oh, you all don't know about that. You, yeah, you have to work twice as hard to be considered just as good. That's how it is. Um, or, you know, come and sit and talk to me and yeah, let me tell me all about it. Or yes, they're going to they're going to now judge every person like you based on what you do. Right. Like these are things that I grew up with as fact, but it was very new to my students. And so helping them then navigate institutions and helping them navigate um, their ambitions became part of my work as an artist. Like it, you can't really separate when you're a teacher, right? You're teaching the whole person. You don't just clock in at Meisner and clock out at Chekhov, you know, like <laughs> you're there the whole time. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I always had that stream in my work and then when I became a professor recently at an elite conservatory, um, it all came back again. It's like, right. It's because a lot of these things are built in to the actual system. I then asked them about the huge movement in the theater arts world for accountability against macro and microaggressions, especially in theatrical academic institutions like universities, conservatories, and Broadway. What did they think aided in the spark of this revolution, not just for black lives, but for accountability within the arts? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I was actually thinking about this, like, not that these things have to go in 50 year cycles, but, you know, now this notion of um, attacking the microaggressions or the macroaggressions that happened in theater, it happened 50 years ago in the 60s, right? And then it happened like 50 years before that in terms of what was known as the Harlem Renaissance. Like, you know, the Harlem Renaissance then, you know, attacked, you know, the early Broadway as this great white way. Same thing happened in the 60s, and now we're doing it again, you know, in the 21st century. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, a historian would probably have to figure out, like, you know, what the, what the jumping off point was, you know what I'm saying? So with the Harlem Renaissance, people think it's either Jack Johnson went in a heavyweight title or the First World War, which triggered all of this stuff, you know. In the 1960s, depending on where you put it, it's either Vietnam, you know, um, X and King's assassination, like a, a big historical event is the thing which triggered it. You know, you know, George, George Floyd's murder 
is is significant, but I think it's been brewing for a while. Um, and I, I, you know, it's interesting when I'm when I talk to theater people who, um, I mean, I, you know, if I want to say the other, th- if I want to say the, the other thing which I think is interesting about uh, this particular moment is for so long, black artists and artists of color were really trying to get into you know, the, the doors, trying to get into the gates of power or something like this, right? And then when they got in there, they realized that the emperor has no clothes. And then they had to back up and be like, wait, what? You know, I mean, I, you know, I, when I lived in Chicago, I got commissioned by Steppenwolf and Goodman Theater. When I'm back in New York, I'm still friends with Oscar Eustace at The Public. I know Jim Nicola at New York Theater Workshop really well. And I think that there is a... Uh, I like Jim Nicola a lot. So what I'm going to say is not, is not against Jim, but a few years ago uh, he did a play about Tupac and he thought that this play was fantastic and it was really important. And, and then I went to it. I was like, this play for me, this is something that, you know, this is, this is, this is something that you're working through. Like you don't understand that this play has nothing to do with me. And it was directed by somebody who, it was just, it was, it was what it was. It was like a, a black slot in a season. Um, and so I think to, to answer your question directly, I think that one of the reasons why this new movement has happened is, you know, people have gotten inside the doors of power and some of them in positions of power. You know, George Wolfe used to run the public, you know, a, 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 a black gay man, um, you ran it for 15 or 20 years. So they, you know, they're aware of the inner workings of these institutions. And then I think, you know, one, they discovered that the emperor has no clothes. And then the second part is I think that they also were coming to an awareness that um, everyone who purported to be an ally was not an ally. Like everyone who they thought were, you know, in their corner, they were not in their corner. Um, And I think that that... You know, it's 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 one of those things where you, you know the veil is lifted because, for so like I, like I said, for so long people never got into those corridors of power, and then when they get into the corridors of power, they get an understanding that um, they don't want they don't want you or someone to be in there in their complete complexity. They want you to be in there in the way that they know something to be. Do you know what I mean? So they, they want you to, to fulfill their stereotype or fulfill their notion of whatever it is. And um, I think that's why people have started to push back. I also think that, you know, the, 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 the other challenging piece is, um, you know, even if I think about the, the Tennessee Williams example that I gave at the beginning, when I start to deal with that in class, students say, well, that means Tennessee Williams is a racist. I said, I don't know. I said, but I think that now that you have that knowledge, you can make the determination however you choose to label him. That's up to you. But what my job is, is to give you the information. So I don't think that he's a racist. I do think, however, his, his work, it does, when people, when, when somebody says to me that his work is universal, I say to them, he marks his work being white. He has the gentleman caller in, in um, Glass Menagerie use the N-word 
only to highlight the fact that this gentleman caller isn't a perfect gentleman and that this is a white space. Like he marks it as white. So then when you say to me, you know, young actor, Dominic person, oh, I'd like you to, you know, read for Tom. And then Tom, you know, is this great character in literature. It's like, but he's setting up his sister with a dude who uses it. You know, like I've read the whole play. Like how I'm not supposed to deal with that at all. Like I'm supposed to ignore that, you know? And I think that one of the things that happens, and this gets back to the emperor having no clothes or the veil being lifted over people's eyes, is that, you know, you can like Tennessee Williams. I'm not saying you can't like Tennessee Williams, but don't, don't come to me with the universal thing because Tennessee Williams specifically makes it not universal. In the writing of it, I'm like, I'm not making this up. He makes it not universal. Or, um, you know, the other great classic canonical play, which I've said a, a lot, you know, the source of Othello is Cynthia's play written in 1565, in which the purpose of the play is to tell white women to stay away from black men. That is the function of the play that Shakespeare turns around and respins. That's the, that's the function of the previous play. That's the, that's the source material. So when somebody comes to me and tells me that Lawrence Fishburne played Othello and Paul Robeson played Othello and, you know, James Earl Jones played Othello, I'm like, cool. That's very cool. <laughs> but I'm telling you, what I know now, the knowledge that I have now, I, I don't want to play Othello. It's not my thing. I, I, you know, nobody's hiring me to do it now anyway. But it's in part, the, I think that the real reason why the, 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 the revolution is happening is that people are becoming more and more aware. Like they're starting to say to themselves, I mean, how do I, how do I, how do I say this? They're starting to say to themselves, I don't have to fall into the notion that there's this tradition. I can live in the 21st century or whatever place people want to live in and use my life experience, my knowledge of history to come and review these works in a different way. And when I come and I review these works, some of them are functioned to place me in a subordinate position. And I choose not to do that anymore. I choose not to hold that subordinate position anymore. And so they decide, or, you know, I guess we decide that we don't want to do that anymore. So that's part of it. But, the, but, but it is weird, you know, I mean, you know, somebody, somebody will say, well, Dominic, it's not a microaggression when somebody asks you to play Tom in Glass Menagerie. And I'm like, yes, it is. Now this is the challenge, to me, to me, because I'm a black man who's read this play and I'm not dumb to, you know, like I've, I can read. So if, you want, if you're telling me that that's the only place you can find my humanity, or you think that that's a complex character that I should hold on to, you don't think I have other complex characters? There's not a canon of other African-American work or diasporic work if I want to go outside of the United States in which I could show my complex humanity. Um, and so, you know, I might not, I might, I could call it a microaggression. I just could call it the fact that I'm just like, I got knowledge that I didn't have before. I got information that I didn't have before. And I also have, for lack of a better term, um, power that I didn't have before, you know? Um, how do I say this? Um, part of the, 
revolution is predicated on standing on the shoulders of other people. And, you know, 50 years ago, you didn't have a black tenured professor at UCLA. You did not, not in theater. It did not exist. And so I am in a position now that did, no, one, no one could speak the way I spoke. I speak now 40, 50 years ago because no one was there. No one is in the room, you know? And I think that that's part of the other challenge, like the fact that, you know, people are in different positions now. We, we, we can make different changes. That's a long answer about microaggressions, but it gives you, lets you frame it in some way where the revolution comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, for, for, to get to your first question about like these, this accountability for macro and microaggressions, I, I, think, I think it's important. I think that there is something happening on the ground uh, that I am very excited about because it is pushing this uh, question of accountability. I am not necessarily optimistic um, about what can happen, but I'm very excited about what's happening from the ground up now and that people are being, people's backs are being put against the wall and being made to account for, for things. I think that is fabulous. Um, in terms of this question, it's a great question. There's a lot to unpack in it about macro and microaggressions. I also want to float onto the canvas uh, another term, and that is microantagonisms, because I think aggression and antagonism are definitely related. Um, I think that antagonism is, is a word that's important for us to think about um, because it, it marks or categorizes what Black presence poses to the world. Many different people across many different intersections can suffer and do suffer macro, larger, and micro, more localized aggressions. You know, queer people, black people, uh, Latinx people, on and on and on. Uh, women, you know, of and women of, uh, you know, all of this, these, these um, and, and, uh, aggressions can happen across all of these categories. But blackness in particular seems to pose an antagonism that ratchets up, as my former advisor and now comrade and friend Frank Wilderson would say, ratchets up the scale of abstraction such that it, um, it increases exponentially the kinds of violence, not necessarily or only upon the body, but on the psyche. And it permeates everything in ways that make Black bodies, black bodies in being that intersect across gender and so on, really, really feel it. So in other words, a, a way to, 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 to break that down a bit is anything that's happening anywhere in the world is always going to be exponentially greater. So when we look at um, black people getting murdered by the cops, which, are, which is getting caught on camera more and more and more, um, it's always been going on, but it's getting caught. So this is pushing this accountability thing that you speak of. But then you look at trans black women, okay, or black trans women. They are being murdered more than any other category of queer people, all right? So there's a kind of antagonism that exponential queerness, which is to say black queerness, poses to the world that we have to examine. So I just wanted to float that on the table first, first of all. But as to the rest of your, your the next part of your question, you, you, you wanna know like what is sparking this and, and is it a kind of revolution, not just black lives, but this accountability. I think it's been like, um, 
you know, it's, I think the ability to document things, you know, I mean, the, 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 the Holocaust that was, that was uh, perpetrated against Jews in Europe, there, that happened, that was a particular um, period in time and a phenomenon that was horrible happened at a time when there could be documentation. I mean, there was, you know, it's old documentation, old film images, when the soldiers went in to the camps and were rolling these, these cameras and, and, or with cameramen or whatever, documentarians, whatever, and saw the residue, the aftermath of this. It was something to behold. And so it gave Jews a kind of traction to be able to then come up with slogans that said, never again, we're going to continue to, to tell this story and so on. The, the nightmare and the Holocaust of slavery, however, didn't have that kind of documentation, first of all, um, and didn't have, I mean, it had, there, there were the ledger books, but the, the fact of slavery brings about a, a whole other set of questions because it's not, um, it's not an antagonism against a people because of who they are. It's an antagonism against a people because they are, period. And that, that degree of distinction is, is, the, is the difference between aggression which, which is, of course, performative and enacted against many people, and antagonism, which is you, I need you not, I mean, you, you, there has to be a way that you are not alive. You are not alive in this thing called human, human being, but yet you are needed so that I, as the human, can know who I am. And so this creates a, a major sort of ontological, meaning political ontological uh, conundrum for black folks, because it doesn't matter what stage, what, what, um, what uh, station in life we are. Some of us are luckier than others. Some of us have circumstances that make us end up being middle-class, you know, university professors. And some of us are part of the rank and file of blackness, you know, which is, which is, um, uh, beset by all kinds of things. But as we've learned from many, many different things, from Barack Obama to, to Henry Louis Gates Jr., you can have a suit and tie on and be a very distinguished, you can have the highest office in the land, or you can have be a very distinguished professor at Harvard and still find yourself, if you don't, even if you have the, pr the protection or the cloak of your context, being dishonored in ways that will take your breath away, right? So that's the, and that's because you pose, Mr. President or Mr. Professor, you pose an antagonism to the world. Not because of who you are, but because you are. Exactly. Just by being. Yeah. So. so this, so your question about what is sparking this, I think the documentation, the fact that most of us have nothing else to, I mean, we're all stuck in our houses. Right? You're like we, there's no plethora of distraction. So when George Floyd was there with this office, this this officer's um, just bitter, cold, antagonistic knee on his throat, choking the life out of him, here we all are, captive at home, watching it, and now there's no nothing to do but say, "Wow," you know what I mean? And 
does that change the fact of, of, of anti-Black animus? It doesn't change it at all, but certainly it has captivated the world in a very particular way. And it seems to be fortifying us Black folks to say, okay, now, it's not like this is the first murder that we've gone through. It's not like this is the first anti-Black thing. But you know what? This, y'all gonna have to, y'all gonna have to talk about it. We gonna have to really talk about this. Y'all gonna hear some noise about this here. All right. And so I think that's a moment that we're in, you know, and that's what has sparked mm-hmm. all this stuff. And, and, and um, young black folks doing, you know, uh, pushing this um, current of activism in the in educational forums and other places. I think this is what's going on. This got me thinking, how long has there been this call for black theater instead of African-American theater? And what's the best way that theatrical academic institutions can think about the differences more critically? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, well, you know, I think one of the, well, there are a lot of things, but I think one of the big things that I don't completely unpack in that quick essay. So black theater operates, when I'm thinking about black theater, it operates outside of this protagonist antagonist dialectic. So when you, when you come to like, um, for colored girls, you know, for colored girls who consider suicide when the race is up, you can go and read that play 10 times. Nobody, who's the antagonist in that play? The antagonist is some, you know, there is no antagonist in the play because it's a play about healing, it's something else. And so the protagonist antagonist dialectic gets removed. So the way in which actors get trained to figure out tactics to go forward becomes different. An African-American play often is done for a white audience. So it's done to show a white audience, you know, how black people can exist. So what ends up happening is you do have heroes and villains. You have this protagonist antagonist space. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's much less progressive, but if you want to think about it differently, it's like pop music and, and like, and jazz, you know, like pop music is different. Or if you want to think about it, like underground hip hop versus, uh, you know, Muzak, (laughs) you know, they're like so different. The way in which you make them is so different. The way in which you have to train to make them is different. And I do think that, you know, even when, um, I think that one of, the, one of the mistakes that people make when they're thinking about, well, when I'm making the distinction between Black and African-American, if you're making Black work, the, the, the need or the ability to translate it is gone. So that there are a lot of codes that happen. There's a lot of behaviors that happen. There are a lot of things that happen which are just inherent to the work. When you have African-American work, when you're trying to deal with the bridge conversation, you end up trying to build in pieces that that can show you know your humanity to white america and it's important that that be part of the making of the work so i mean i just i, I mean there's so many differences i i i also think that they thematically it's interesting when writers do two different types of work um because i'm going to pick on august wilson and i'll mention lynn nottage so august you know, with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, although it was his first successful play, that's a play that's straddling a line to African-American theater. Because you've got a play in which, you know, in, even in 1983 when it was done, so many Black people knew that, you know, you get robbed when you record your music. So Ma Rainey's getting robbed or Levy not having opportunity. Like, that's not a conversation that Black people need to have with Black people. Like, they're consciously aware of that. And Joe Turner's come and gone, it becomes a more complicated scenario. And in that, he fills it with stuff that like 
is hard to translate, like the Juba at the end of the first act, or like things where people are like, I'm not exactly sure what's going on in that world. Also, the, the protagonist antagonist dialectic is totally like challenged by that. And same, and you know, like Lynn, Lynn's, Lynn Nott is a great writer. She, she, she's very conscious of how she builds her stuff, but you know, to give you the bridge, the bridging space in her play Ruined, you know, there are a lot of things in Ruined, but one of them is, is this white character who's there, who Mama Nada gives the diamond to, to try to save someone. But the fact that Lynn has decided, you know, it's to place it in the Congo, and there's all these kind of complications about that play and whatever. But the fact that she has a character there that she, te- that she says this central female character is going to give the most valuable object in the space to the white character is saying something to the white audience. Like that's a signal to the white audience that this, that this work is for you, that you, you know, that you're going to hold the valuable object. It's, it's African-American theater. And I, and I, and I probably shouldn't have said music and underground hip hop. I probably should have said like pop music and jazz. Cause then people are like, I like my Jackson five. I like my, you know, um, Nina Simone. So you can do, do the back and forth. But I think that, you know, one of the things that has to happen is people in theaters need, I mean, sorry, people in academic settings need to be able to decipher the differences. And I think one of the things about deciphering the differences is, um, you know, if somebody were to say, oh, I have a student who's from the Dominican Republic, I need to give them Lope de Vega to read. I'm like, do you know anything about DR? Do you know anything about, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're culture is this complex thing you just need to be aware of like how culture manifests itself and like who the writers are and who is not like Lope de Vega aside from being 500 years prior to um you know the student's existence in some way is a great Spanish writer and you know maybe something about the original language is is significant but it's not going to attack life from the Dominican Republic in the you know at the end of the beginning of the 21st century it's totally different so black and African-American theater, I think, you know, theater institutions need to be aware of it and need to market and they need to embrace it. I think a lot of white institutions don't want anything to do with black theater. They don't want anything to do with it. It's entirely lip service. They want to do something with African-American theater and they want to have a play that is, you know, pushes African-American theater and makes it that I get to put bodies of color on stage. And then as a white person, I get to, you know, not feel bad about it at the end or, you know, to, to, to be heard like the black character at the end of slave play says, have you heard me? I mean, you listen to me. I mean, that's nice. I mean, it's nice and it's in it, but it's African-American theater. That's one of those challenging things. It's, it's, it's hard for, it's hard for people who teach theater to even understand that nuance because they don't even understand why black actors don't want to do white plays. Like they don't, <laughs> they don't understand why, you know, why you're not happy, you know, playing Stella, you know, like why you shouldn't be happy doing that. Um, Aside from the fact that, you know, has nothing to do with you, you know, really. I mean, you can play it, but I'm just like, the the notion that that's the apogee of your training is problematic. That's that's what I always know is, is, is hard for people to put their heads around. So, I love Lorraine Hansberry and I love Raising in the Sun. She is fantastic. I love Lorraine Hansberry. This is the real deal. I love, I think the play is fantastic in so many ways. Um, and I, I will tell you a story about a student who's Nigerian who was asked to play a role in it. 
But the year before Raisin in the Sun was done on Broadway, there was a play written by Lewis Peterson called Take a Giant Step. And Take a Giant Step is about a young, rich black boy in Connecticut. When he first walks on the stage, he's banging his leg with a croquet steak. He's a rich boy. And he comes in in the first scene, he's upset because all of his white friends have disowned him. And they're teenagers now. And so they're going through puberty. So all his white friends disown him. And his grandmother is home and he's talking to her. And one of his white boy you know, friends comes in and knocks on the door because he wants to borrow some equipment. And Spencer is his name, the Scott family. Spencer gives them bats and balls and mitts and all kinds of stuff. And he says, go and don't come back, go. And, uh, and then at the end of the first act, so first scene, so rather, he asks his mother where the black side of town is, right? And so the play ran on Broadway for a very short period of time. And one of the criticisms of the play was that that's nobody's black life. However, the author, Lewis Peterson, was from Connecticut. He came from some means. His dad was a banker. His mother was a teacher. He had, like, this was his life. But people didn't want to see the middle-class black boy's life. They're like, oh, let me see the family that's cleaning roaches in the second scene. That's the black family that I can get my head around. Because this is, you know, and, 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 and Raising in the Sun is a greater play than, than just that moment. Because I actually think the, 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 the misread of the play is, it is about the fact that money doesn't make Walter a man. It's not about moving into a white neighborhood. Because if it was about moving into a white neighborhood, I say this all the time, the white character would have showed up before the end of the second act. The white character has to be on stage before that, if, it's, if that's what the play's about. But my point, to your point, was um, there are so many different stories about the black experience that we don't want, or the black uh, Latin experience, or the black, all kinds of multiple experiences. And, and oh, the story I was gonna say about my students. So there's an actress, she's actually, her career is growing, Nike Kadri. She's, she's on some television show, anyway. She was a student of mine in Minnesota and they wanted her to play um, Benitha. And so she, she is um, from Yoruba people uh, from Nigeria. She's from Nigeria. <laughs> and so they give her this play to read and she doesn't understand anything about the South side of Chicago because her people are from Nigeria. She's not, she doesn't know any of this, you know? And then, you know, it was funny. We were talking about how Asagai is this like romanticized Nigerian man? Cause she's like, this is not how Nigerian men are. This is like a black American's view of like great Nigerian malehood, but that, that's not real. That's a fantasy, you know? But it was interesting cause she, you know, somebody wanted her to do the role and they were like, you, you know, you're a great actress, you can do it. She's like, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about this life. So how can I do it? Like, I, I just, I cannot pull from anywhere to make this happen. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a thing about, building out the complex stories and trying to find more ways to show those complex stories and to get away from, you know, I mean, you know, get away from these ideas that say, whatever, you've got ghetto life and then you've got, you know, whatever other kind of life. I was going to say like the, I mean, it's, it's so weird. And you know, being a young woman in the business, it's also really hard because you know, you know, um, one of my, when I taught at Bard, one of my young students, when she got out of school, she said, uh, she went, she was from New York, she came back to New York. She said, the only thing they want me to do is be the gangster's girlfriend. And I was like, yeah, I forgot to tell you that. Cause she did like Juliet on campus or something, you know, it's like she's out there doing Yerma or something on campus, you know, at Bard and 
you know, in college, it's kind of idyllic in some way. And then she got back into New York and they, they don't want her to do anything. You know, they want to, I think she said the gangster's girlfriend, not even the gangster. And I was like, yeah, that's terrible. But that's the business that we're in. And that's the thing we have to keep fighting to try to find ways to keep making and telling the complex stories that we, I mean, that, that are our lives, you know what I mean? That are our lives. I mean, it's not like, it's not, I mean, you know, I think the thing which is so fascinating to me, even when you talk about the ghetto life, I should talk about the ghetto life stories. I, I okay. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this succinctly. One of my big issues with the ghetto life um, poverty space is that the makers of it don't even do that right. Because if I wanted to be simple, somebody who is impoverished has a series of complex thoughts other than trying to steal or trying to rob or trying to get somebody's man. People have complex things going on in their brains all the time. And you never get to see that. And so I think they do a disservice to poor people. I mean, I'm just sitting there like, I, I know, you know, I, I grew up really working class. Some might categorize it as poor, but we, we had a series of complex lives that I don't think I've ever seen even remotely approached on anything, you know, not, not, not just theater, theater, film, TV, web series or whatever. I mean, I just, I mean, I think that there is a dearth of understanding of the humanity and it helps to say that those people, us, aren't human. Because if we're not human, then you can treat them in a dehumanized way when they're not on screen or not on stage. You can treat them in a way in which they're not, you know, um, yeah, that they're not, <laughs> I'm gonna go back to Othello, that they're not the complex human beings that the rest of us are. The rest of us, you know, who walk and are bipeds, you know. Um, the, fa the, the fact that Othello, never has a moment with Desdemona before he kills her and says to her, I joke about this. He never has a moment with Desdemona that says, hey, what's up? He never has a moment with her like, yo, I found this handkerchief, what's going on? You gave up your family for me. You gave up your family for me. You're the only person that's on my, you know, with me. And you're gonna be hanging out with this, this is this what it's about? And he doesn't have that moment because he's an animal or he's a military man or all this other kind of bogus, reasoning that people give he should have that moment with that woman to say hey you know you gave up everything for me what's what's this about seriously like the scene that's not written but if you write that scene you make him a human being you make him a real human being and then you know then he also can't kill her <laughs> which which also ruins the, the whole the whole thing like he's got to kill her otherwise you know. <laughs> We don't have to play. He's got a killer. So, you know, it's hard. You know, it's interesting. The terms black and African-American are having this really interesting examination right now. We're in another period of evolution, right? My grandfather, who grew up, you know, he was born in 1920 New Orleans, right, was colored and then he was Negro and then he was black, and then he was African-American, right? And each one of those changes meant something and was really a drive to re reframe who black people are in this country. And 
for white consumption, right? We always knew who we were, right? And so the, the term African-American was really about culture. I mean, I was part, I remember that, that it was like the word black in, you know, the 80s, let's say, 80s into the 90s, the word black was considered um, generic and without a specific culture. So the term African-American pointed to the fact that black folks in America could not necessarily point to which particular country or culture they were from, but that Africa has many countries and cultures and that there are things about the way black American culture has developed and is situated that is distinct. It's its own thing. It's not just not white. <laughs> And so the, I think that the, the shift that you're talking about now is this really interesting re-examination of that term African-American. First of all, there are a lot more African immigrants in the country. And so being an African-American as, you know, a Nigerian-American or a, a Ghanaian-American, right, that's a very specific culture. So I... I don't want to be stepping on that, right? I don't want to try and yeah, say definitely. I'm something I'm not. Um, but also this idea of digestibility, palatability, how do, you know, making ourselves um, respectable, right? Is Respectability politics is another term that gets thrown around. And I think it comes out of that need to um, be seen as respectable. Um, but you know, there was also the black arts movement of the 60s. I was like, no, that's not what this is about at all. Um, and so I think we're, we're reclaiming that in a different kind of way right now and really thinking about um, the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, in the context of the black arts movement, which was about black art for black folks, but also about economic empowerment. Like black people don't usually just talk about one thing, right? We're always, we're always looking for justice on all fronts. And I think our art has always reflected that, always reflected that. So I think it's interesting when you look at the academy, it's like, well, how do you decolonize the theater? Like there's a lot of lot of conversation about that right now. And I don't know that I have uh, a list of bullet points that will work, but I can tell you that what I'm interested in doing, what I'm looking forward to doing, is really a deep dive into what we feel artists are gonna need in the next 10 to 20 years? What do we need people to know? And, and what is the text that gets there? Um, in, in elementary school, in K-12 education, they call it backwards design, right? What do you want the outcome to be? And I think for so many years, the outcome was slick actors who will get a job right away, get an agent, get a job, and have a long career in American regional theater or be famous in movies and television. And that was kind of the mark of success. And I think that now, what I'm interested in, in part because I have always worked in community, um, is really looking at who are the storytellers of the future, 
right? Like the, some of the best writers, some of the most prolific, the most prominent black female writers right now started as actors, right? And they just didn't see the roles they wanted to play. And so they started writing their own work. Um, I think that the, the, one of the bastions of white supremacy that has begun to fall just in purely economic terms is this silo of an actor just acts, an actor trains to uh, fulfill the desires of a director. And so the more pliable and malleable you make yourself, the more valuable you are. And I think that I'm interested in actors who are going to help us imagine the beautiful community, right? We've had a lot of dystopian fiction over the last 20 years, um, like everything. And dystopian fiction in a lot of ways is a cry for revolution, but they don't tell you what to do once the revolution comes. Like once the revolution comes, what are we actually trying to get to? Not just what do we not want anymore, but what do we want? What's the affirmative? And so I think finding actors who can train to tell those stories, which is going to mean talking to all of the people and understanding all the real complexity of all of the people um, and being able to unpack these systems of power that permeate everything we do and imagine what would it look like to if everybody got to be their best right and there are steps that you need to take you know you need the educational steps it's like yes this is what this is yes this situation is happening in the world but also you know looking at what have we been missing all this time i i saw a thread on twitter because i follow medieval historians as a sort of bizarre side note about me um but there was a there was a thread about plague in the Middle Ages. And there's a scholar who had studied an English author and an, an Islamic author who I think may have been Syrian, or he was tracing the, the plague through China and Syria and all these different countries. And they were talking about just the cultural response to plague and that the, the Christian European, I think it was English author, you know, those folks saw plague as a punishment from God and you have to run before it gets to you. And um, the, the other cultures saw it as a test of God and we have to, from God, and we have to come together. And so the communal action and communal support were considered a key way to respond to the plague as opposed to quick run, it's your fault, you did it get rid of you and we'll all be fine you know um really different different modes of storytelling right like why is every story we see <laughs> about the lone wolf hero how many lone wolf heroes do we have and what kind of problems does that cause i've heard a lot of conversation that i've been having for a long time about police stories right the in, I teach Shakespeare, and every Shakespeare play starts with a world in disorder. And to me, it's like an episode of Law and Order or NCIS or, you know, name your procedural show. They all start with a murder, 
right? The world is in disorder. And then they give us 42 to 47 minutes of the hero or sometimes the team of heroes who, who identify the problem, seek out a solution and find justice, right? 45 minute arc. So you keep rolling that over and over and over and over. What does that tell you about the relationship between power and community? Right? It's like there's only a small number of people who are the valuable ones who are going to help us right this wrong. But who are the people who are cast in the roles of the wrongdoers? Um, what is the role of community in those stories? Right? You got your snitch on the corner. Like, that's the type. Um, and there's not a whole lot of community problem solving. It's always these lone wolf or this, this maybe it's a pair of detectives who are so smart, they can figure it out. Um, and what are we missing when that's how we are trained that problems should be solved? Because that's what's happening in schools, right? You are told that here are the teachers, they are the holders of knowledge. Uh, let me bring myself uh, and perhaps they will break me down and get rid of all my inhibitions and get rid of all the, all the, all the blocks so that they, the master teacher, can master teacher can rebuild me in the image of the greats well you know that question is really intricate um because i, I just talked about i just cited audrey lord the, the great audrey lord I'll, I'll cite her again she she reminded us of something really important and it's not good news and that is that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house so that is we, you know, that we have to lean in and really hear what she said. Now, of course, she's not saying there's a big ellipsis there because she's not she's not talking about the slave. <laughs> and and given a certain degree of traction, what the slave would and the slave slaves have always been on the move toward insurrection, you know, um, and have always posed uh, a, a not only antagonism, but also a, a, a particular kind of anxiety. So, but I think that, but, you know, to, to take your question on more, more directly, um, it's always hard because uh, us being called on to provide solutions to a, uh, what is in so many ways an incommensurable problem and one not of our making, um, gets wearisome and is a continual source of <laughs> rage for me in many ways. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and that's not directed at you. I mean, I'm talking addressing that bigger problem of like, okay, this is a big mess. So, okay, black people, what do we do? You know, but 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 you're you're you know you're asking me this question in in, in definitely in good faith. And so, um, I don't think institutions ever mean to dismantle what they're doing. So that's the bad news. Um, the, and you, you, you hit on something really important because there are collective unconscious interests and investments in keeping everything exactly as it is. It's all rooted in Europe and the Greeks. Everything, you, you said it earlier on. I can't remember if it was before we started recording or after, but you mentioned um, the thing about you know, the, the European um, rootedness of the theater that we practice. And at some point, I don't have anything against um, uh, us learning about or knowing about um, the roots of traditional theater. I have no, um, well, um, uh, Western traditional theater. I have no problem with us having knowledges about that, but um, I do have a major problem with it being the dominant 
context that we're made to swallow when um, other kinds of, um, of uh, theater making and performative uh, art is, um, is, you know, elided completely, you know, like, like not dealt with at all or not taken up as serious art. So when it takes itself, so in terms of um, dismantling it, I'm not sure that that, I'm not sure that I have the musculature to dismantle it, but I think what has to happen is that there, it needs to open up so that um, when black sensibility or um, black perspective on drama and what it's doing comes in bearing a thesis, you know, that that space needs to open up so that that can happen. Um, and that means hiring people and not only hiring them, but creating an environment that is not hostile toward them so that they can be retained, not just hired, but retained, you know? Um, and that is, that is not easy. So it, it, it requires a kind of, I think it, I think it requires a kind of uh, deprogramming. I think you, it's almost like you got to take people, put them in a room, lock them in there and, <laughs> You know, like, um, but but seriously, you 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 need to. Um, there there needs to be not you you, but there needs to be a reckoning in this moment, perhaps, with the fact that it ain't all about y'all. It ain't all about you. You it 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 has been, and you think it is, and you continue to try to th through this kind of Prospero Caliban reenactment over and over again, try to make black people over in your image while at the same time recognizing that we'll never be that we'll never be in your image and we don't necessarily want to be in your image uh, entirely although Franz Fanon helps us to understand that that's complicated because we realize that the the easiest way to be in the world is to is to not be black and so a lot of times we go down these roads of trying to meme and mimic um uh, whiteness and acceptability. And we learn, you know, we, 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 we take, you know, we, we learn how to talk like them and we learn how to, you know, uh, take away all, all, every ounce of blackness in our voices and, and we, we can do it. And, and those of us who, who can do that and who get on that path, get work a lot of time, you know, the, the, the deracination, the, the sort of the erasure of blackness that is going on all the time in the theater industry. And that, that happens in theater institutions. It happens in the industry itself and the profession, we say, you know, but so we're constantly caught in this stuff. So I don't think there's any way to dismantle it so much as to cause a ruckus when we are present. If we're lucky we can make enough noise to break through and to be able to have some influence on the students that we teach as we go along the way. But by and large, we are going to face, we are going to be what Hortense Spillers calls embattled. We are going to face more pushback, rejection, or just being gutterballed and ignored um, altogether, which is a lot of what I have experienced in the past, you know. Um, and uh, you know, not non-support, just sort of an abs a vacuous non-support, like a non-engagement. That's the word. Like just not engaged, not engaged. So, but you, does that mean that you stop doing the work? No, you bang and clang against the walls of Western Eurocentrism as loud and as hard as you can, and it's exhausting. But you are along the way. You're making a little impact here and there, and you're getting through to certain students about 
the importance of it. But there is a learning process that Eurocentrically conditioned faculty have got to go through um, to be able to set down the, 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 the importance of Eurocentric training. But their identity formations are so invested in that that that's easier said than done, you know? But they are at a moment of reckoning. I mean, having said that, they are at a moment of reckoning. <laughs> and I'm very happy about it. As previously stated, this is the first half of this conversation. Next week, we'll be releasing the second half to learn more about how traditional westernized training omits the black experience and what white educators can do to dismantle racism within themselves. You can read more about their work in the description, wherever you're listening to podcasts, or at iscla.org podcast. Continue to check out resources that help the Black Lives Matter movement and reimagine how we produce BIPOC theater at iscla.org justice. Also, be on the lookout next week for a special announcement from ISC. We've got a little surprise for all those missing our Shakespeare in the Park Summer Festival. Rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's it for now. As always, stay socially distant, not emotionally. The music you're hearing in this podcast is called Past Sadness by Kevin MacLeod. You can find this and other amazing sounds at incompetech.com.